Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Live. Hi everyone, this is Cheryl Farney. Hi, this is Celeste. Who else is joining us? Anybody? <laughs> I see there's three people on the call. Hi, Cheryl. Hi. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm terrific. Okay, if anyone is on the call, if they could please just let me know who you are. Well, we'll find out later, I guess. Maybe they're, oh, no, they're unmuted all. Okay. Well, maybe we should. <laughs> um, I have to admit, Cheryl, that I am a technological uh, something or other, and I am on the phone, and I'm also on the web watching who has logged in. And I do see that there are three people, maybe three other people joining us, but I'm not sure why they can't say anything. So um, we'll figure that out later. This is Stacy. Can you hear me? Oh, it's Stacy. Hi, Stacy. I can oh, you hear can you. Hear me. God. Oh, <laughs> another technological something or other. Yeah. Okay, terrific. Let's just get started because we are being recorded now. Uh, I am so happy to introduce Cheryl Barney. Cheryl and I have known each other, I don't know, maybe about two years, hasn't it been? Yeah, about that. About that. And I was introduced to her through her work with occupational therapists at the hospital, at the UIC hospital, in addition to the fact that she's also a trained RAP facilitator. And so am I. So we know each other from there. Um, Cheryl, do you want to perhaps give your... your um, Curriculum vitae to us. Sure. Your, your history a bit. Uh huh. Um, well, I I was going to introduce myself by saying I'm a certified recovery support specialist, and then tell you what that is. Does that, that work for sense. you? Yeah. Um, so a certified recovery support specialist is someone who is a consumer of mental health services who is also um, in a not a clinical role, but in a role that is a supportive role to people in recovery. So. Um, here in the state of Illinois, we have the credential called the CRSS, mm-hmm. and it, it requires um, 2,000 hours of work experience to get wow. it, uh-huh. plus 100 hours of education, plus a test. So you Yikes. have to go through a, a whole rigmarole to get this certification, mm-hmm. which I did in 2004, mm-hmm. and I finally got it in 2014 after being a recovery support specialist myself for two years. Wow, so, so you were working as a support specialist and you became certified two years later, right? Yes, yes and correct. And you also have a bachelor's degree, is that correct? I do, in theater and classics. Ah, so, wonderful. Uh, yeah, so not related to psychology at all, but um, theater helps and so does the Latin when it comes to the medications, actually. Oh, that's true. Well, so, you know, I'm a th- I have a theater background also. That can be a whole other session. How is theater related to psychology? 
<laughs> oh, that, that would be awesome. I, I would love to be fun? a part of that. That would be that great. Would be um, so you, it took you two years to get the certification. Can I ask what, uh, what are the benefits of being certified? Uh, higher pay. Oh, that's and nice. yeah, well, yeah, um, and more opportunities in the community for work. So, um, more and more agencies are looking for peers that are certified in recovery support specialists. Mm-hmm. So, um, like agencies like Thresholds are willing to support people who are who are trying to get their certification, but they want to they want people who are ultimately certified. Now, Stacy, you're still at um, um, Elgin, right? Correct, yes. Right, and uh, Elgin Mental Health Center that's run by the state of Illinois. And well, you have I, two, I know of I, two um, certified recovery support specialists there. Oh, really? Robert, mm-hmm. Robert Price works with the inmate population. And um, Pat, why am I blanking on her last name right now? Uh, Lincoln? Pat Linquist. Yeah, yeah, is is the Region 2 um, CRSS, and she works out of Elgin Mental Health Center. Right. Oh, I wow. also know that at Chicago Reed Mental Health Center, um, Toby, Toby or Tori, terrific guy, is their recovery support specialist. And actually, Chicago Reed had a, has had a recovery support specialist, I'm guessing, 10 to 15 years um, in various roles. And I can also I also know that at uh, an an ACT team and a certified community treatment team needs to have a, a, a certified recovery support specialist on every ACT team. Yes, this is so true. So you guys are all over the place. We are, and we're continuing to grow, which is very exciting. There are over a hundred CRSSs in the state, um, uh-huh. and we're continuing to grow. So. Um, with the support of Nanette Larson, who is the ambassador for wellness and recovery in the state of Illinois. I so, love that title. I know it's, it's very <laughs> groovy. Uh-huh. We'll, we'll we'll support Nanette in that. Um, but yeah, that's what a certified recovery support specialist is and does. What else can I tell you? Well, you worked before you were at the hospital. You worked in community mental health at Trilogy, right? I did. Correct. And. And I think you're still affiliated there, right, a little bit, no? I am. I'm on the board of directors there. Okay, terrific. Um, so maybe you can tell, uh, and Trilogy has, did you interact with the occupational therapist at Trilogy at all? The, actually, unfortunately, no, because um, I worked in the drop-in center at Trilogy uh-huh. as the coordinator there. So I oversaw the day-to-day management of the drop-in center. Mm-hmm. And I uh, bet they started after you left, I guess. And they did. They did yeah. start after I left, which is unfortunate because they've got a really great program at Trilogy. The OTs do. They um, do. And they're working, with, they're working with Williams' clients mostly, Williams right. and Colbert. And Colbert now, too. Yep. Which is the um, – Williams is a lawsuit that is getting people out of IMDs, Institutes for Mental Disease in Illinois. And the Colbert decree is the one that's working with people in any kind of a nursing home, I believe in Cook County. And that includes people with physical disabilities and approximately 40% of whom have um, psychiatric something or other going on, too. So that's pretty interesting. So, um, so let me just make, go ahead. Was that you, Stacey? Oh, I'm one? sorry. I was just clearing my throat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> sorry fine. about that, guys. Is anyone else on the call besides Stacey and myself and Cheryl? 
Um, hi, Celeste. This is Virginia Poynton, and um, I got on a little bit late, but I'm here, and it sounds very interesting. Oh, terrific. Thank you, Virginia, for joining us. Um, sure. Thank you. So, Cheryl, can you tell us a little bit about your work at the University of Illinois Hospital and how you work with the OTs there? Absolutely. I was hired to, uh, basically, they hired a CRSS here on the inpatient unit so that we would see less turnaround in the, in the patients so that there would be less readmissions, mm-hmm. right? Um, Which and is terrific um, idealistically, and also I think that's like one of the uh, mandates from the uh, Affordable Care Act, isn't it, that you get the hospital to pay more money for readmit? That's a good question. I don't know the Yeah, they do. They get some kind of penalty. They they track readmits and get a penalty if they have too many. Wow. Well, that's one of the reasons they hired me was to yes. to lessen those readmissions. And I'd like to think that I've I've had an impact there, but I mm-hmm. it's not something we're measuring. Oh. So so I don't know what my my impact has been. Right. However, um I do three groups on the inpatient unit. I orient I do orientation. Mhm which is part of the OT schedule and uh, all my all my groups are part of the OT schedule mm-hmm. um but the orientation group is basically if they're new to the unit I I help them get oriented to the unit and and give them support as they're coming in the door is the idea mhm um and then I lead a recovery group which is a new group which I'm very excited about um and where I'm telling my story and sharing my recovery journey with patients in group. Mm-hmm. So um, it's been very powerful thus far, and, and I'm I'm really excited about it. Yeah. Um, but also I do a RAP group. You, you mentioned that I'm a RAP facilitator, and RAP is short for Wellness Recovery Action Plan. Mm-hmm. And it's Mary Ellen Copeland's. I say it's her gift to the mental health community. Uh. She... Um, created RAP so that she would be able to better manage her depression. And she is also a consumer of mental health services, but she is um, also a Ph.D. in psychology. Mm-hmm. And um, she RAP is an evidence-based practice, um, which we actually proved here at UIC. Judith Cook and her team proved that RAP is an evidence-based practice. And it's sponsored by SAMHSA um, and other organizations who want um, to see the recovery movement grow. Mm-hmm. So, it's a wonderful thing. Stacey, I know you, you're familiar with RAP, right? Yes. Yes, I am. Yes. And Virginia, are you? No. It sounds fascinating. Oh, it is terrifically fascinating. I think the website is, correct me if I'm wrong, Cheryl, uh, mentalhealthrecovery.com. Correct. Or if you just, uh, yeah, or if you just Google Mary Ellen Copeland. I just want to tell you something cool. Yesterday, Cheryl, I was look, uh, looking at um, a document from the from Behavioral Health something or other. Anyway, it was tips for caregivers, and one of the tips was to start something like a RAP plan for yourself, you know, to deal oh, yeah. with the, um, what do they call that, the vicarious trauma of dealing with people who've uh, been traumatized every day that you can kind of pick up on that and you have to take care of yourself, and that's one of the things they suggested, which I thought was total cool. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is uh, that uh, the group you're running called Recovery just sounds wonderful, and I know I've told Stacy this before and probably Cheryl, but when I was at Chicago Reed, the state hospital 
on the north side of Chicago, that's one thing that we started with something called recovery stories. We had people come in from NAMI that had been hospitalized before at Chicago Reed to talk to the uh, staff and the patients and just tell their story. And wow. uh, it's incredibly powerful. And I do remember when I first started working in behavioral health, that, that's the thing that would really just hit me, just hit me in my heart and in my head about um, the kind of work I was doing. It, it's really a powerful thing. Absolutely, and it can be draining for me to tell my story over and over again. But I bet. Uh, <laughs> but I do think it's helpful to our patients here, and and I, I've seen a lot of lights go off when in their heads and in their eyes when I talk about my recovery. Sure. Because they're like, they're just so impressed that somebody could leave this situation and come out on top. Mhm. Mm-hmm. So. I know you you do share this all the time. But you, that, this is where your theater background comes in, right? You can yeah, probably. <laughs> Would you uh, mind sharing your uh, your story with us today? Oh, no, not at all. Terrific. Um, so back in 2007, I was traumatized at work. I was sexually harassed. And um, it led to me being paranoid and, and being... It ultimately led to me being sick and psychotic, actually. Um, I started wandering around the streets of Chicago and um, following what I thought were spirits and um, very scary stuff. So back in in 2008, I was hospitalized five times um, at Chicago Reed and at Northwestern and at um, the University of Rochester um, Hospital in Rochester, New York, when I was there for a visit. That's where I'm from. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was hospitalized five times there. And then um, late in 2009, in August of 2009, I was picked up on the corner of Chestnut and Michigan after standing there for six and a half hours. Um, I I didn't know where I was. I didn't know what I was doing. Somebody thankfully called the cops, and I I, I pray for them every day because they saved my life, whoever called Mm -hmm. the cops that day. Because wow. um, I was standing on that corner for six and a half hours from six in the morning till um, about 1 p.m. And the cops came and brought me to Northwestern and mm-hmm. I was evicted from my apartment. And during that time, during the time I was in the hospital then mm-hmm. and um, wound up in, in Northwestern's then program called Emergency Housing Program. And I was forced to take medication against my will, but um, that medication is what has brought me around to my reality orientation, and I'm very grateful for it. Um, Right. Now, did they have a court order to give you meds, or they just... No, the housing, because of the housing, to keep my housing, I had to take meds. Wow, okay. So. So a strong incentive to do that because right. being on the street was no fun. Um, and I'm I'm a very delicate person anyway, so I being on the street would have been devastating for me. Yeah. So um, I mean, it's devastating for anyone, but for sure it would have been awful for me. Right. So you were in an emergency housing program from Northwestern. And I did that. Meds. Taking your meds, as I understand, because they were forcing you to not really... Was it dawning on you then that these were really helping you, or did that take a while for you? That took almost three years for me to say, okay, I need to take meds. Ah, Um, 
because I was in that program for six months, and then I was in another housing program. They had a longer-term housing program called um, Union House at the at the Lawson Y that I was accepted into, um, on the condition that I would take medication and go to groups and um, take care of myself, which I did. And then in 2011, I stopped taking my meds and I got sick again. And wow. I, I was I was hospitalized in two, in June of 2011. I missed my best friend's wedding, actually. Oh. And um, she later got divorced, so oh. I didn't miss anything. <laughs> you didn't miss much. I didn't miss him. Let's put it that way. He's he was a real class act. Um, but um, I was in the hospital of June of 2011, and they switched my medication from Risperidone and Haldol to uh, lithium and Abilify and Haldol. So I was on pretty intense antipsychotics for a long wow. period of time. Yeah. And um, I've slowly been weaned off two of those meds. Mm-hmm. I now take only one. Um, on a daily basis, which I think is great, and it helps, and mm-hmm. and I'm happily on medication for probably the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, wow. that's that's my story. <laughs> yeah. Wow, thank yeah. you for sharing that story. You're it's amazing. It's powerful, isn't it? It's very powerful. Yeah. And mm-hmm. this, um, Cheryl, this was all triggered by the um, the sexual harassment. Pretty much, yeah, and I, wow. and I it it's taken me a long time to recover from that, and um, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder or schizoaffective. They took them. They were arguing between schizoaffective and bipolar disorder with psychotic features um, for a long period of time, and I I had delusions and ideas of reference, and I I was pretty sick as a result of that trauma. It sounds wow. really scary. So, just really I was, like you just you, I was scared. scared. I was scared. Did you scared. find that you um the trauma kept you from sleep or how how do you relate the trauma to the um cuz you were what age when you started to get the psychotic symptoms? 29. 29. Wow. Okay. okay. You know, currently um the the women of Fox um news are, have brought um, sexual harassment complaints against Roger Ailes, and it's very interesting to know about that story concurrent with what you just shared. Um, oh wow! I, didn't I, even I think have, of that. Yeah. You know, and I have so much respect for for um, for women that can stand up and try to um, tell their story and um, get help. Mm-hmm. It's. It's remarkable. I mean, I really honor you for what you did. And I I just learned a lot by hearing your story. Oh, my Thanks. goodness. Me too. Me too. And I think it, as providers of uh, um, behavioral health services, I think it's so important for us to realize that it's not a straight road. It's not like, oh, you come to the hospital and you take meds and then everything's okay. Um, uh-huh. it's, it's a, you know, life is what it is. It's an up and down struggle all the time. Yeah, and yeah. we're so, I mean ultimately your patients are people, right? That have a past, right. that have a present, right. that have a future. And I and I think that's the most important thing that I can stress to anyone in the mental health field is that your patient is a person and while that seems so obvious and seems so seems so duh, you know, I I know that, but we do sometimes forget 
that they're not just a diagnosis, that they're not just an illness, that they have a past that has led them to this point, and they have a future that hopefully has a lot of hope in it. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think um, for me it's important for me to remember that that person is the expert in their own mental health. I'm not. I'm a facilitator to what's going on. But ultimately... You know, I bet if we were working together and I was saying, Cheryl, you have to take these meds. You have to take these meds. You know, it wouldn't work half as well as uh, the what you went through to recognize whatever it was that made you go, whoa, I need mm-hmm. to take these meds to be okay. Yeah. You no, know? it took it took me, I had to go off them and get sick again to realize that I needed them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is an unusual. I mean, yeah. You know, that's the way life goes. Um, Cheryl, okay, I, I was wondering, um, oh, excuse me. Go ahead. I was wondering, um, Cheryl, was was working on the trauma, the part of your recovery or the mental illness or the combination of the two? Um, can you talk about that as far as your recovery goes? Um, well, yeah, I've been in therapy since August of 2009. I've been seeing the same therapist, and he's been very helpful in terms of my processing of the traumas that I that I went through, not only in my adulthood, but in my childhood as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but the trauma that I went through at a corporation here in Chicago, actually, it was it was at a at a corporate office where I was the receptionist, and all the men wanted to sleep with me and <laughs> oh, God. I was like I I was overwhelmed by that and 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 I didn't know how to handle it and and it was it was difficult um in the moment living through that and now you know I look back on that and I realized that I was a abu- I was a victim of abuse and mm-hmm. I have like a to toxic environment yeah, it was a toxic environment, and it was a female CEO, and and there what? were many women supportive of me, but I kind of rejected their help um, at the time because I I don't know why, but I I did. So, yeah. and it took me, and I it took me a long time to process that, and I'm still processing that. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, sure. Thank you. Thank you for yeah. sharing. Sure. So I have. Two questions. One is about you, and one is about your work with the OTs. Um, I just wanted to let everybody know that you are uh, doing terrific, and that you are back in school for your women's studies degree, right? Yes, I am. I know um, that's so cool. Your master's at Loyola. Awesome. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it is so cool, and I think that's also you know. Um, Something for us to recognize is that uh, the, um, what does Mary Ellen Copeland say about hope? That it's limited, limitless. Mm-hmm. You know, we can never, uh, how many times have I been in an inpatient situation and heard someone, generally a psychiatrist, uh, say to one of the clients, um, well, well, you're, you're probably never going to be able to hold a full-time job, which is like, hello, how do you know that, you know? Yeah. And so, uh just remember that, that you can do whatever you want. Absolutely. And actually, we were I was at a seminar where we were talking about the a situation where people were asked about their hopes and dreams and and for themselves and 
the nurses replied, oh, well, I'd like to have a house. I'd like to get married. I'd like to have children. Sure. Yeah. And these are nurses, right? And then what are your hopes and dreams for your clients? Oh, well, that they take their medication, that oh. they <laughs> behave in an oh. appropriate manner. And then you look at that and you're like, well, is this fair? You know, can you have hopes and dreams for your clients that, that are equivalent to your own? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. That's true. The way people write goals, you know, so and so will um, uh, be compliant with medications, and it's like, well, there's a goal. How about a goal as to why they want to be compliant with their medication, mm-hmm. so yeah. that they can get a house, so they can get a job, so they can love somebody, right? Yeah, and this is something I did with OT. I worked. I did the group um, symptom management with the OT department here, and uh-huh. they had a they had a, a worksheet called compliance, and I was like, <laughs> no. No, I cannot handle that. <laughs> um, and so I changed it to taking control of my treatment plan and things that we wanted to add into the treatment plan, like, and then I gave a list of things that were possible, like exercise or taking medication or um, getting enough sleep or mm-hmm. talking to my doctor on a weekly basis, these things that they could put into their treatment plan that it was up to them that which what they want to put into their treatment plan, mm-hmm. which I thought was, and and ha, we we had a good response to that. Oh, good. Was it hard to uh, get the department and the occupational therapist over to 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 leave the compliance alone and to say something as powerful as taking control of my own treatment plan? I think they liked it. I mean, I think initially it was like, who is this person coming in from the outside and changing my worksheet? But um, (laughs) um, we we worked on it together, and we've been doing it as a group for almost two years now. So Mm -hmm. I think I think it's effective. I believe that occupational therapy as we are just like naturally recovery oriented for the most part. And uh, before the recovery movement at, with my work at Chicago Reed, I felt like the occupational therapists were uh, uh, swimming upstream, that we were the only people saying these things, that we were the only people thinking this way yeah. and in a world where no one else was. Um, and I think that's changing, maybe. Stacy, Virginia, would you agree with that? I mean... Do you think that other professions are on board with? Oh, I, with I the think recovery the recovery movement? movement has definitely brought that forward. Mm-hmm. Don't you think the the recovery movement is is kind of um, brought everybody up to speed with the same language and 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 the hopefulness and um, resiliency I hope and so. all those kinds of things? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I, have... it's, I think your your choice of words compliance. When we think of compliance, that's just a Debbie Downer kind of word. It's just, you know, Mm -hmm. complying to somebody else's goals for you, whereas taking control, owning your own treatment plan, and being part of your own team, you know, um, is so much more powerful. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. When I first was at Chicago Reed, clients weren't even um, asked to go into their treatment team meetings. Oh wow! It was only yeah, it was only professional, and hmm. then, um, but and even by the time I left, which is maybe four years ago, uh, first the treatment team would meet the professionals, and then they would bring somebody in, 
and I always just felt so terrible for that person because here's someone who's like in the hospital less than 72 hours and they are brought into a room with sometimes 12 professionals just sitting mm-hmm. around a huge table, right? And mm-hmm. someone's brought in and uh, their social worker says, so what are your goals? And it's kind of like, oh, to get out of this place, really. This is my major goal. Right, right. Um, but, yeah, they're definitely, definitely coming along, I think. Uh, I do uh, some work at Threshold with um, – I have students there, level two students that spend uh, a couple months there. And I know that Threshold, Life Trilogy, um, like University of Illinois Hospital, are totally committed to the recovery model completely. Everyone that works at Threshold, whether it be an accountant or a member of an assertive community treatment team, is um, educated about the recovery model. So it, it's pretty, uh, it's terrific. I, I think Go it's ahead. so helpful um, for all of us to learn more about this because I, I know personally it is, any you know, depression and addictions, they have touched my family in so many ways. And I think they've touched all of our families. And so I think as we sort of really embrace um embrace more honestly what what's you know what happens to us as human beings going through this life and how difficult it is maybe we're becoming more honest and understanding um how to reach people um it, it definitely makes me much more empathic I mean, when i've seen ptsd in my own family and um schizophrenia in my own family you, we know that this can touch any of us Oh yeah, and it's so important to hear these stories and to to be just empathic. And the sense the sense that I that I'm getting from from Cheryl's story, especially um, the sense of lack of power when you don't know where you are, standing on a street corner, you're you're completely disoriented. That must be so frightening. And just to be able to give someone the ability to have a little bit more power in their life by discussing a treatment plan, seems to me the, the first step, mm-hmm. you know. Right. There's all that, uh, um, there's a lot of literature written on the uh, uh, the power that an occupational therapist has, the power that professionals have over mm-hmm. the person that they're working with, and you have to acknowledge that and let mm-hmm. it go. Okay. You know? Yeah. That makes perfect sense. And then there's the whole stigma of the of having a mental illness. Do you, Cheryl, do you find that that's lessening for you, or is it, in your opinion, as a whole, is um, acceptance that mental illness is just that an illness? Well, I struggle with that because I lost a lot of friends actually, and I was engaged. Oh. I was engaged at the time that I got sick, and he stuck with me for a while, but ultimately called me when I was in the hospital and said, "That's the end." So um, I've I've been personally wounded by the fact that I have a mental illness and I had to grieve the loss of my life as it was. Mm-hmm. Um, so and one of my therapists says, you're grieving. She said, she said to me, you're grieving. You, you, you lost this fully functional life that you had and, and you, you have to put the pieces back together and you, you might come out a different person and you have to be okay with that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which was powerful to me. Um, she she was a, a social worker that said that to me. And um, I don't know. I, I think that some people treat me fine and mm-hmm. in my work environment I'm I'm respected and appreciated and held up with high regard. Absolutely. Um, which I appreciate and but um and in my family I am too. But that's, that's um, socially it's difficult, you know, trying sure. to find a, I'm trying to find a mate now and and that that yeah. is dif- that's difficult. Mm-hmm. You know, cuz when do you share your story with a potential mate or not and that right. that I, I i give advice to my clients i'm like you know it's nobody's business but yours mm-hmm. and you know if you don't want to tell someone you don't have to it's 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 not it's not something that should harm a relationship or not but right you but then to, if you get serious with someone yeah i mean that is something that you need to share i think am yeah. i wrong no i think you, i think you're right but yeah. i i do think that you know I'm I'm scared of that. Sure. Let's put it that way. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, it's interesting that you're in a field that um, welcomes the fact. I mean, that's part of your your uh, the requirement for your job is that you identify as having a mental illness. Right. But if you were in another field, let's say you were, you know, a pretty straight laced field, I'm thinking like a, a lawyer or something. You know, when do you disclose then, if ever? To your yeah. employer? No, I don't think you do. Because it's none of their business, and you know the ADA right. protects us with that. So yeah, but the ADA protects you only if you've disclosed. Well, that's true too. Yeah, so that's a double-edged sword there too. But there's also a lot written about uh, the pros and cons of disclosure. I think um, what's his name, Patrick Corrigan, out of uh, IIT. Have you read his stuff, Cheryl? Don't call me nuts. Is oh, is that book? <laughs> yeah, is that the book? I've just read a lot of his articles, the, and. Um, He's got a, I forgot what it, it used to be called, say it out loud, some kind of campaign for people with um, a psychiatric diagnosis to be upfront about it because, in his opinion, that's the number one way to get rid of the stigma. Uh-huh. You know, like if, if you uh, yeah. equate it, yes, if you equate it to the um, gay rights movement where uh, people were closeted for so many years and the whole world was homophobic because nobody knows who's gay and who isn't. And then all of a sudden you find out that a whole lot of people are gay (laughs) and they're your family and your friends and everything else that becomes more accepted some way. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, sure. Anyway, that's his theory. And I, I agree with that to some extent. But I also think, you know, as a private person, that it's it's nobody's business but mine. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I share my story every day, but I it's still nobody's business but mine to share. Right. right. Does that make sense? And it's it's within my power to when I share it and how I share it. Right. And that's way different than uh going on a date with somebody new. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 We gotta fix you up, Cheryl. That's the thing. <laughs> 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 That's how I met my husband. Okay. Yeah. Well, well okay, gals, we keep our eyes open, all right? I, I was yeah. happy to see um recently, actually a couple of times in the news that one of the um passions that 
uh, I guess it's Princess Kate in in uh, in London. One of her passions is to work on behalf of mental health and bringing it out of the closet. Okay. Yeah, really? and, and, yeah, yeah, she's working hard on that. I wish yeah. that she were our princess, but that would be nice. Oh. <laughs> I know. I, isn't that exciting, though? I think that's yeah. fabulous. So yeah, maybe she'll make some progress. Mm-hmm. And that's in the UK. Yep. Yeah, that's in, yeah in the UK. Yeah. Well, occupational therapy in the UK, working in the in um, psychiatric settings, is huge. Absolutely. Ah. There's lots of literature that comes out of uh, the UK, both working in psych settings and in forensic settings with people who've been um, mm-hmm. committed criminally for something or other. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And one of the reasons I believe that OT isn't in more psychiatric settings is the reimbursement issue, Medicare and Medicaid and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, another road to cross, right? Yeah. I just um, found out from Lisa Mahaffrey, our uh, state president, that the, you know, the big news for occupational therapy and mental health is that we've been um, um, mandated as an official uh, provider in the, the CCDHDs, the community, what is it, Certified Community Mental, uh, mental uh, Behavioral, community Behavioral Health Centers, right. And we were all very excited, and then we found out that, um, uh, no one in the, the Chicago area is not qualified to have a CCBHD. We're working because, on it, the trilogy. Are they? Because we're of working the, on it. Um, because of the Medicaid thing, right? Medicaid managed care. It's not just Medicaid. It's it's which services you're able to provide. So thus, we've we actually at Trilogy are starting to serve children as well as adults. Oh, cool. And that that was part of yeah that was part of our issue is that we didn't have children services or uh, family services. Oh. So, because Lisa told me that the payment structure for the CCBHDs is only through Medicaid and Medicare that isn't associated with managed care. And I didn't know that. Yeah, and all of the Medicare and Medicaid in the Chicago area is now managed care. Yeah, online care. Managed care companies. Yeah. yeah. Oh. And it's such a huh. you know, there's always huh. some little something or other that screws everything up. Because trilogy would be a perfect CCBHD. We think perfect. so. Yeah. But yeah. No, that's that's devastating to hear. I, I I'm gonna have to bring that up to John and see what he says. Absolutely. See if he knows about it because um, John Mays is the uh, uh, what is he? the CEO of Trilogy. Yeah, he's the CEO. And he is a visionary. He's a wonderful man and hired occupational therapists without worrying about the reimbursement issue. And they now have four occupational therapists there that are doing amazing work. One actually who's from the UK. From a he worked in a forensic setting in the UK. So yeah, that's, that's totally cool. So can we? Uh, let me see if I have another question for you about the hospital. Are things? Are there programs or um, things that you would like to see started at the hospital that you're working on? Well, I just started this recovery group, right, which I find is very powerful, and and I I would like to work more with the MDs. Um, myself and the mm-hmm. teams. Um, I I do round with them probably once a week. I try I try to round with them twice a week, but it's tough with uh-huh. my schedule. 
Yeah. What does that mean to do rounds with them? So to sit in when they're evaluating a patient and also when they are visiting a patient in their room mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and to give feedback in terms of what they're doing, mm-hmm. um, you know, because they use terms like frequent flyer and compliance and things that make my skin crawl. Yeah, and I have to remind them, you know, you, you're in a recovery environment. We want to in- encourage better language. We want to encourage more acceptance of our patients from where they're at. Uh-huh. You know, um, so like so you're that, the language police. I like I am, that. I am the language police mm-hmm. here. Yeah. What's do, they respond to, do they respond to that, Cheryl? They do. Um, a lot of times they'll, they'll apologize and look down at their paper like I, they feel ashamed that they've said it in front of me. Um, uh-huh. So and they, and they have responded to a lot of my criticisms over the last two years, but I'm not rounding with them enough to really support the change. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, I know you're it's very nice well respected. Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say it'd be nice if they'd let you orient, like the I don't know if they're residents or like, the residents are really responsive. Okay. Um, and and really engaged in in what I do. Um, they solicit my advice more often than not, which is nice. Um, yeah. The attendings not so much, but some of them do, some of them don't. So it depends on the attending which which of them is is more interested in what I have to say. Okay. I think that's a change in education, I'm hoping, from, yeah. uh, you know, that they're trying to make. Um, I know at, the, at UIC Medical Residency Program, um, the uh, person in charge of their is an occupational therapist, Maureen Gex-Silver. She um, does all the med uh, education programs for um, the residents in terms of, like, motivational interviewing and self-management. And um, I don't think she does the recovery model, but I do know that they can take a um, do a residency at Threshold. Oh, cool. yeah. So maybe that's I'm thinking it's an a, a cohort, a generational cohort thing that is more yeah. people are trained in this. You know, the, the easier it's going to get. That sounds right. Yeah. Because yeah. even though I'm older. I feel like I've been trained in the, in the newer um, methods somehow. But like I said, mm-hmm. occupational therapy, it's kind of always been there. Right. I started looking at people from a wholeness um, uh, as a whole person. We started in mental health in uh, 1920, 1970. So, yeah. So that's where we are. Well, it sounds encouraging. You know, it that's it's moving. It's kind of creeping forward, but it's moving forward. Oh yeah. yeah, no, I definitely feel that here at the hospital for sure. Um, mm-hmm. I've done a lot of good work with all the teams, and I mean, I still feel like there's work to be done, and sensitivity needs to be improved. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, we're working on it, so it's, yeah. it's all good. Cheryl, when you get together with other CRSSs, um, is that pretty much the feeling that most people feel accepted in their environment, and, or are, are there still a lot of struggles to get their uh, your point of view across? 
It depends on where they're at. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, Trilogy is a big peer organization, so right. peers at Trilogy feel really involved and really a part of it. Although, mm-hmm. um, I I talk with some other CRSSs at Trilogy who feel like they're still on the outside. So it depends on I think the person, and I, it depends on where they're at. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in general we do feel like. There's, we're still fighting for nothing about us without us, right? Right. So um, that's something I think that even all CRSSs would say they feel left out of the general picture because, well, how do I put this? Um, I think they just because there's still out. stigma. There's still stigma on some level. Yeah. You know, I think, yeah. um, I know our pre- at Chicago Read, our previous, um, we the term was patient advocate there for uh, for recovery support specialists. It was really an uphill battle for her. Um, part of the reason be- was because one of her major roles was as patient advocate, which put her in this adversarial position to begin with, right? So whenever mm-hmm. had a, a patient had a complaint, she was called to... Um, to take down the complaint and to, uh, you know, to support the individual, which was terrific for the individual, but very hard for her as the patient advocate because she was immediately at odds with the staff. The she was the one filing complaints on the staff, right? right. Yeah. So, yeah. So how do you win over a staff that you are uh, filing the complaints against? <laughs> right. So that was a tough one. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it was, like I said, 10 years ago when the recovery model was just a twinkle in somebody's eye. So maybe it's been 10 years already. Gosh, I don't know. I don't know. Sure. What have... other kinds of things do you do with OTs? Um, you mentioned the three groups that you facilitate. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what other kinds of ways do you collaborate with OT? specifically um can you think of well i can tell you one way i for my doctoral presentation was a curriculum for ot's who do not work in mental health who are interested in working in mental health and cheryl co-led that with me and um shared her story and worked in small groups with people to share a first-hand perspective on um what recovery means and how to practice in a recovery way and that was fabulous Cool. Thank Couldn't you. Couldn't have done it yeah. without her. Couldn't have done it without you, Cheryl. Ah, thank you. You're yeah, welcome. no, I I do work with OT pretty. I mean, I I'm part of the team. I I consider myself part of the OT team here, mm-hmm. and I think they consider me part of their team too. Um, at least they put me on the schedule, so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm no longer doing symptom management with them. Um, just because our scheduling couldn't work out to include me in that, mm-hmm. but because um, we're now, our, I'm I'm starting classes in the fall, and that's changing everything. And right. do you do any one on work one work with people through referral or through? I do. They definitely refer me to clients. Yeah, mm-hmm. the the doctors and the OTs do. Um, 
if they're not getting through to someone and they think that I'd have a better shot, they definitely refer me to a patient, Right, which and I'm, that was, I'm thrilled yeah. to do. Sure, and that was exactly um, the uh, patient advocate's role back at Chicago Reed. We considered her part of our department uh, unofficially, meaning, you know, when we went all went to lunch together, she was with us and all that kind of stuff. And we also were the ones to make most of the one-on-one referrals for things other than complaints. You know, for people, especially like maybe first-time psychosis, who were so, so scared of hmm. uh, what was going to happen to their lives. And it was really uh, a very positive thing to see a woman in her 60s who had lived her 20s like this and who owned a home and uh, had a delightful daughter and was working to support others. And that was a very, very powerful thing for that person to hear. Mm-hmm. Which was terrific. No, I've definitely been referred to even catatonic patients. I, I I've worked with oh. here on the unit. Yeah. So. Yeah. So they heard you, whether they were catatonic or not. They I could don't know. Still listen. I, I definitely <laughs> worked with with a, a patient we had long term. I, I was thinking about her when NOT had reached a, a standstill with her, and. Mhm. So I started yeah. working with her. Do you work with the adolescent unit at all? I don't. That would be an interesting population. Yeah, I don't Um, think that my story would appeal to them as much because it happened to me during my adulthood, so. Oh, that's true. And there, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the uh, adolescent unit at UIC, but that's a DCFS unit where um, all the clients come from uh, placements, like residential placements or foster placements where they are at risk of losing their placement. So they've been kicked out of many places already, and this is kind of like the last haul. And they stay at UIC for a couple of months, don't they? Something it depends. Like I don't really know much about K2. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Stacey. You had a question? Um, uh, I, oh, Stacy. <laughs> or Virginia, whoever. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Um, I was going to ask you, um, if Virginia, um, is how you how do you use or do you use your theater background? Oh, good question. That's a great question. Um, I'd like to use it more, to be honest. I, that would be fun if I could do like a interior monologue type thing and have people mm-hmm. perform that. Um, yeah. I actually have some experience with drama therapy myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked with Thresholds in 2011, 2010. When oh, cool. Do that? Yeah. Um, and they, they have a theater arts program, or they did at the time. I don't know if it's been cut since then. Oh. But, um, right, we put together a play yeah. with yeah. people who, and, and people would get up and tell their stories as, as part of a, you know, monologues, and we would put together a whole show. It was mm-hmm. lovely. Yeah. yeah. And I, I and I want yeah. to do more of that. Yeah. Well I just remember um reading of about Bessel van der Kolk who works with um a lot of trauma, um PTSD and serious trauma. And he talked about using theater. Sure. I don't know who that is. Oh, okay. He's a psychiatrist, um, who is a practicing psychiatrist and a um neuroscientist. Oh, so he's kind of on the leading edge of PTSD treatment. He's in Boston. He's been doing it for like 35 years. 
And one of the videos that I um, saw him do, you know, I was taking some online courses. He talked about using theater. I mean, Shakespeare with um, some of the, the veterans that he worked with. Actually, there's a program in Kentucky. I think it's Kentucky that's um, Shakespeare for inmates, and they, oh. they do um, they put on a show every year, every six months or so. They put on a show in the in the jail, in the okay. prison. Wow! And it's um, interesting. I forget yeah. the name of the group, but they do do that. And, yeah. and Shakespeare is great because I mean he expands your mind yeah. anyway. So wow. yeah, that's pretty powerful. Yeah, Nate Pelodowski works in the. Uh, in the prison system here, she's not an OT. I don't know what her background is, but I know she does shows in the prison system. But that would be interesting. I, I do know theatrically they, what's that threshold? Somebody had a group of um, people who identify as having a mental illness working to train the police. In, oh. Uh, in, yeah, in how to deal with people who are psychotic, you know, that aren't criminals, that are just, yeah, experiencing some kind of psychotic something or other, and they were part of that training, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, it's called Shakespeare Behind Bars. Okay. Cool. They have their own website. I'm looking at it right now. Um, okay. Part of their they're a member of the Shakespeare Theater Association. So. Okay. The other thing that came to mind listening to your story is, um, I don't know if you've ever listened, or if anyone's on the call has listened to the Moth Radio Hour. Yes, yes. Isn't that powerful where people just tell their story? Yes. Um, what, they get, what is it, I don't know, Celeste, is it like five minutes or ten minutes? I, they, yeah, I've actually, Cheryl, they uh, do it here at uh, Martyrs in Chicago on Lincoln Avenue. They have the Moth. I guess they have these things all over the country. Are you familiar yeah. with it at all? Yeah. I'm not, but um Oh, it's fabulous. Did, it is fabulous. NPR do stories without borders or story what is they NPR does a, a show called Story 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 Mm-hmm. And then um, from the local ones, they pick ones to put on the radio. Yeah. StoryCorps is a different thing. I actually did that with my husband. Um, if, if anybody can go, it's at the Chicago Public Library downtown, and it's a national organization, and you interview somebody for an hour. And it's just two of you. And they give it, you get a CD of your entire interview. So people often, like kids, interview their grandparents or whatever. And my husband had a um, traumatic family life. So I interviewed him about the, the trauma of his family. And yeah. it ended up, they, and they took a clip of it and played it on the radio. And uh, um, I still run into people who say, I heard you and your husband on the radio. And it's very powerful. It's just like the... Play, partly played is like a two-minute thing um, in about his relationship with our kids in relationship to having an alcoholic dad, you know, and not and dealing with that. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so both of them, I, I would recommend for anybody. It's, it's oh, fascinating. It is incredible to hear the stories, and you can just—I mean—I feel empowered by people telling their stories um, because we can find parts of ourselves in the story. 
but I can only imagine what it's like for the, the people getting up there and just telling their story. And it sounds like you do some of that with, with the patients that you're working with. Mm-hmm. I do, and I, I encourage them in my recovery group to, to share their own story and share where yeah. they're at. So, yeah. I, it I, think that's imp- I think it's away. important. To, yeah, it takes the stigma away. It makes people more comfortable with where they're at. It makes them feel like there's hope for the future. Mm-hmm. There's a lot. That's my sure. husband feels that way. That when he, um, it's just like it feels good to get it all out in the open. Yeah. You know, which is interesting. Well, hey, it's twelve fifty-seven. Oh, we have okay. Nine off. Uh, I am taking the month of August off. Yay! So, um, I will send out uh, notices about our September meeting. Uh, Cheryl, this will be on uh, a recording online in case you ever want to listen to it or have your patients listen to it or the occupational therapist that you work with might want to hear it. I thank you so much for sharing your time and your story with us and, uh, and for your work at the hospital. No, you're so welcome. Stuff. Thank you're you. Welcome. It's wonderful. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, Stacy. Thank you for seeing you. See you soon. Cheryl, I have yeah. lunch, okay? All right. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.